Yesterday, while I was uh, waiting for Maggie's treatment, I saw an article about a fairly well-known actor, and it said his name, and then it said, fighting for his life. So I said, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about. So open up the article and started flipping through it. And uh, it turns out that fighting for his life, that that was uh, a description of uh, two main things. The first was uh, alcohol addiction, and, and certainly some of you have had uh, family and, and friends who have uh, struggled, of course, with, um, with uh, drunkenness and the, the, the difficulty and the, the sorrow that that brings. And so I certainly don't want to minimize that, but the thing that I want to focus on was the other thing that was part of the struggle that he was going through, and that was that in the space of a year, he divorced his wife, and then he had been through at least three other women in that time period. And the relationships, each of those subsequent relationships had started before the previous one had ended. And uh, Kelly and I were having a conversation about the fact that, you know, it's difficult to call it cheating if there's no commitment at the beginning, but certainly there is a lack of any kind of faithfulness if you've made at least some measure of commitment to someone and then uh, immediately betray that. What's our, what's our response to that? What a terrible guy. You know, here's someone who's played, you know, strong role models in movies, and and you would think that he would be the sort of guy maybe that you could look up to and say, wow, you know, what a terrible guy. What about us? Do we sorrow over treachery in our lives, in ourselves as well as in others? How often do we and we'll see these things in the psalm we're going to look at tonight. How often do we boast? How often do we lie? How often do we flatter? How often do we, as the psalm will go on to say, show signs of a double heart? And David is sorrowing about the treachery uh, around him. And even so, he sees God as the path to overcome that sorrow in the face of treachery. And so we see, I think, in this psalm that we should both sorrow over treachery and that we do this by holding fast to God's truth. I think this is made all the more pointed because of David's own treachery. Here's someone who should have been faithful to his marriage, should have been faithful to his responsibilities as a king, betrayed both of those in his own actions at one point in his life. Whether that happened before or after he wrote this psalm, we don't know but I think that that heightens the significance of what it is that he's saying. First of all, sorrow over treachery. We see this in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. So what's the first point that he says? We should sorrow over the lack of faithfulness that we see around us. He starts out by saying, the godly man ceases to be. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily an absolute statement. You go everywhere, and you can't find anyone who's godly. Even in Noah's day, when the thought of every man's heart was only evil continually, there was at least Noah and his family of whom that was not true. 
And then uh, think of Elijah's day. Elijah says, God, I'm the only one left. And God says, no. Here's these several hundred who have never bowed the knee to Baal. And so, Elijah, you're not alone in it. But the point is that the perception is that there's a majority of people that he was encountering and they could be described as the godly man ceases to be. And then he sort of emphasizes it again, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This is interesting, I think, because of the fact that all throughout the Old Testament, God's covenant loyalty, his faithfulness, is emphasized over and over again. And so to say that there is no faithfulness in human beings, I think, stands in sharp contrast to God's own faithfulness. What sort of unfaithfulness does he describe? He says in verse 2, they speak falsehood to one another, they lie to one another. Not just they do it now and again, but this is sort of a description of their lives. Um, it says in another place that uh, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. So certainly, speaking lies is not something that's foreign to us in our sin natures. It's not something that should shock us. And yet, when it characterizes our lives, clearly there is a, a huge problem. What is the specific sort of lying that he's emphasizing in this context? He says, with flattering lips. Now, flattery in the context of someone who's speaking as a king could simply be someone coming and they praise the king, the person who's in authority, because they want something from him. And certainly that's the challenge for us in our conversations with people. I'm sure we've all had points in our lives when we have said nice things to someone, not because we really liked that person, not because we really believed they were true, but because we wanted something that they could give us. And that, I think, in part, is what's being emphasized here. But there's also an element of what's happening on the surface and then what's happening down underneath that. Notice what it says. With flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak. Uh, the Hebrew is like with a heart and a heart. So here's the thing that you think they're saying, and here's their hidden agenda. Here's the real thing that they're after. So the, the thing with flattery is, it sounds good, it pleases us. We think, wow, this person is really building me up in some way. But the problem with flattery is, the person who's doing it is being manipulative. It's not really about you, it's really about the person who's using flattery. And so obviously lying in general is a problem, but this specific type of lying is a betrayal of Here's what I think's going on versus here's what is actually going on. If, if uh, part of loving God is to love your neighbor as yourself, then lying in whatever form it takes is an attack on doing what God wants us to do as far as loving our neighbor. Think about what it says in Ephesians. If you belong to God, stop lying to one another. Why? That's an old way of living that's displeasing to God. It's not just that it is dishonest, but also that it is tearing down the unity of God's people. So we should sorrow over treachery. Can we empathize in some way with what is described here in verses 1 and 2? Well, I just described to you a situation in which that's the case. Here's a man who was married for a decent stretch of time, and at some point near the end of that, decided he was done with it, he just didn't care about that commitment. That, I think, is a challenge for all of us 
in the church who are married? Because there is pressure in our world to say that the highest goal in life is your happiness, the highest goal in life is doing whatever pleases you, and the fact of the matter is that as wonderful as marriage is, there are also moments in which it is hard work. And that works both ways. It's not just because our wives are difficult to live with, but also because we're difficult to live with. But the reality is, sometimes we have this false picture in our minds that says, if I could do this, if I could be in this situation, if I could be with this person, here's sort of this imaginary world of how things would go. But we forget that, that marriage that all of life, in fact, God does not call us primarily to live for ourselves, but rather to live for Him and for others. Which doesn't mean that we should be miserable, but it does mean that it takes work, it takes diligence, and an attitude or perspective that says, I can cast off the commitments that I have made for very shallow reasons, is both surprisingly foolish and also surprisingly easy in the world in which we live. If someone does it, it sort of blows over after a little bit, and, and people are like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, and sometimes people just say, well, that's not that big of a deal. But David is saying, where is the faithful person? Where is the godly man? Where is the person who's going to speak truth instead of telling people what they want to hear to get what pleases himself? We should lament that sort of a scenario. But how do we deal with that? How do we solve it? How do we fix it? How do we, how do we address it? By holding fast to God's truth. We see this starting in verse 3. I think we start out by seeing that David asks God to judge. He says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said that with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? May the Lord do this is a, is a prayer, a, a, a call for God to act. And what's the request? May God cut them off. Now he's not literally saying, take a pair of scissors, cut off the lips that are lying. He's rather saying the lips, the falsehood represents that person so significantly that if you cut off the flattering lips, he's saying cut off those people, bring them to judgment, bring them to punishment. And what is described as the tongue that speaks great things. Uh, I don't know that all of this is what he has in mind, but James certainly echoes these sorts of ideas when he says in James 3 that in the tongue is a world of iniquity. It sets on fire the course of our lives. It is set on fire by hell that we show that if we are godly, we control it. But the fact is none of us can entirely control the things that we say. And so it reveals the things that are not yet right before God in our hearts. And so again, the tongue is representative of the person. And we see that idea continued in verse 4, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? And I'm sure we've encountered people like this too. Someone who's just always talking, and they're saying all of these things about how great they are, about all these things that they're going to do, and maybe they follow through and maybe they don't, but their attitude seems to be, nobody can touch me. 
and they just sort of build this perspective of themselves using their words. David is saying, God, attack their pride. Because really the question of who is Lord over us is sort of a casting off of authorities. Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a, a king, a ruler of some kind, but at the end of the day, if we say, who is Lord over us, who are we really asking that question of? We're asking ultimately that question of the one who established all those authorities. And so we have to certainly watch out for this sort of pride. And what is God's response? What's the, what's the turning point in this psalm? I think it's in verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Where's the faithful person? Where's the ungodly? God, I want to call your attention to the fact that here are people who are boasting great things and who are, not, are seemingly getting away with it and they're saying there's nobody who can do anything about what it is that we're accomplishing. What's God's response? because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy. The devastation of the afflicted is that the person who is being afflicted by these who are proud, by these who are treacherous, it feels as though their lives are destroyed, and perhaps they actually are. Certainly, deceit of other people toward us can destroy our lives. Someone starts certain types of rumors, becomes very hard to live your life, to get a job, to, to do all of these sorts of things. And perhaps someone finds himself in that situation. What's the response? He groans. What, what else can he do? What else can she do? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy. And sometimes we think, we know it's not true. We know that God is aware of all things, but sometimes we think, God, why aren't you paying attention to this? Or as we heard a couple of Sunday nights ago from Psalm 13, how long before you're going to do something about this, God? But God is listening even if He doesn't always immediately act. Think about the children of Israel. God hears their groaning. And God sends Moses, and God leads them out of Egypt. And God hears our cries as well. Sometimes that groaning is so deep, so uh, traumatic, so sort of exploding out of a soul, a soul that is torn by the circumstances of life that we can't even put it into words. It talks about that in Romans 8, right? It says the Spirit helps our affliction when we can't even shape the words that are welling up in our hearts and minds. God is aware of those things. God can hear those things. And God in His time will respond to those things. What does it say in verse 5? Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. And we see, I will arise. Sometimes, sometimes we fail to, to see the significance of God arising. When we arise... I don't know if it's true of, of for you as it is for me sometimes. Sometimes it's like you're falling out of bed and starting the day. But when God arises, the picture that we have in the Old Testament is 
He stands up and the earth quakes, the mountains move, the seas are reshaped. God is powerful. And so when he arises, pay attention and stand back and watch what it is that he's going to do. That's the picture that we have in the Bible of God arising. And the, the promise here, I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Why does God do it? Not because simply the person is being afflicted, because it says in Peter, for example, you can be afflicted because you've been sinful and foolish, but rather because of the nature of the affliction. Here's someone who is calling out, I think, to God, lamenting the circumstances in which he finds himself. And God is saying, I will arise on behalf of my people. Again, it's a contrast between the faithful cease to be and God is faithful to the covenants, the promises that he's made to his people. Why? Because God is defending the honor, the worth, the value of his truth. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Again, here's the contrast. Verse 2, they speak falsehood. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure. In Israel's context, this would have been something they were constantly having to think about. You could be impure if you came into contact with a dead animal on the side of the road. You become impure simply because you are sick of some, in some way. You could become impure because of different things you came in contact with, with, with building a house or working in the field or all of these sorts of things. And it wasn't a... I don't want to say... I'll just say it this way. It wasn't a moral purity in that you were somehow defiled or worthless in God's sight because of these circumstances. And yet there was also a sense that in order to approach God, you had to deal with these issues of impurity, whether it was... I picked up a dead animal on the side of the road, whether it was here's molten rot in this house and I was there working with it, all these laws and regulations in Leviticus. In contrast to the impurities that characterize so much of our lives as human beings, God's words are pure. There is nothing questionable. There is nothing evil in them. They are pure. And this picture describes them not even so much in terms of some of those other things I was just talking about, but in terms of, of metal that's heated up, silver, tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Now, here's a question. Some people will look at this and they'll say, well, that means that God's words have error because they didn't, weren't able to be presented pure on the first try, so he had to do it seven times. That's not the point of what's being said here. The point is, just like you keep burning the metal and heating it up until all the impurities are off of it, the, the parallel is being drawn between the end result of refining silver and the immediate result of God's word. Both of them are completely pure. That's, that's the point that's being made there. Verse 7, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. And so it says now in verse 7, God will protect the needy from the wicked. And uh, so there's a question. Is the them referring to the words or is the them referring to the needy in verse 5? And I think that there's potentially an argument for either of those, whether it's the them is God's words that he's keeping 
or the them is the needy and then the preserving him is more specific application of that. Either way, the point is the same. God is a God whose words are true. God is a God who keeps his promises to his people and he will preserve them from this generation. What's this generation? This generation is, I think, what Paul describes in uh, Timothy where he says that in the last days difficult times will arise and people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, disobedient to parents, hateful, and the list goes on and on. Or in the days of Noah there was a wicked generation. That's the sort of idea that's here. The generation is those who are wicked, those who are going their own way, those who are forsaking God. God can preserve the godly from the wicked. And it closes what seem, in what seems to be kind of a a down note, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The NIV, I think, smooths it out a little bit, and it sort of has this idea, even if all this is going on, and so this is so they takes verse 8 as sort of an aside, the main point is, verse 5, God is going to arise in his time and deliver his people. Verse 8 is reminding us, I think, that sometimes God's arising has not yet taken place. And we keep looking around us. And we start out, verse 1, the godly man ceases to be, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Verse 8, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. And there's certainly been periods of history and when that's true. And there are certainly ways in which that's true in our society today. Things that are morally repulsive are held up as good. I mean, I think a, a, a fascinating mix of this is the simultaneous argument for treating people with dignity and respect who come into our country as refugees by legal or illegal means. And some of those same people that are crying about that are also saying, but if you want to go kill your baby, it's all good. And we have in our day an exaltation of a strange mix of compassion for some and heartlessness toward others. And, and it's more complicated than just one political party and another political party. At the end of the day, this is not about politics. At the end of the day, some of these issues are ultimately are we regenerate in our attitude before God? Do we call what God calls evil, evil? Do we call what God calls good, good? I think that this is really important for us to remember because there have been people who, how do I put it, carefully and wisely. I think our president has done some good things. I think he's done some foolish things. I think as a person, He's behaved in a lot of wicked ways. And there are Christians who have defended him or others in power and sort of brought dishonor to the name of Christ because we've tried to ignore all of those sorts of things to the extent that a particular goal has been accomplished. And so just as an aside, when vileness is exalted among the sons of men, we ought not to just say it's okay. 
no matter whether this person is on our side or not on our side. But coming back to the main point, we see faithlessness. We catch a glimpse of hope that God is going to intervene. Sometimes we come to another point where we see this this faithlessness again. So here's the question. When you see treachery, first of all, does that describe me? And does it not bother me? Because if I can be treacherous and it doesn't bother me, what do I have to fear? When God arises and when God cuts off the flattering lips, we examine our hearts. If we sorrow over treachery, I think it takes two directions. The first is in ourselves, when we fail to live up to what God calls us to do, and also in others, when we see others failing to live up to the sort of faithfulness that God calls us to. In both these circumstances, if we see it in ourselves and we're repentant of it, God will forgive us. If we see it in others and we're overwhelmed by it, God will deliver us in His time. And so I think David sort of sums all these ideas up. Sorrow over the faithlessness that you see around you. But sorrow, contrasting it, looking for hope, to God's faithfulness in His person, in His words, and then cause, use that to evaluate your own heart and life. Am I being unfaithful in some way? Am I being treacherous in some way? Help me to repent, Lord. Are others being that way? God, bring them to repentance or bring them to judgment in your time and according to your purpose. Sorrow over treachery, but find hope in God's sure and certain word. Let's go now to our time of prayer.